Welcome to the weekly show about art, politics, and pop culture from a phenomenally female perspective. I'm Sarah. I'm Shantae. I'm Eliane, and this is Unapologetically She. everyone to Unapologetically She. And for our inaugural episode, we have the absolute most amazing guest interview. Um, She is Miss Denise Oliver-Velez, who is, as we all know, a literal living legend, Um, professor of anthropology and women's studies at SUNY New Paltz, community organizer, member of the Black Panther Party, member of the Young Lords Party. Um, She's an activist, radio show host, and so on and so on. Thank you, Ms. Denise, for joining us. Uh, Thank you very much for having me. And it's wonderful that this is inaugurating in Women's History Month and International Women's Day. So that's quite an honor. The honor is truly all ours. <laughs> um, so, you know, starting off, we would love to know how you first got involved in the Black Panthers and Young Lords parties. Um, well, it's Young Lords Party first, Black Panther Party after. <laughs> and um, it's kind of difficult to say how I got involved because it didn't really exist in New York and it's kind of organic what happened. It wasn't like making a decision to join something. Um, A number of people who had been active in a community organization in East Harlem in Barrio, where it was East Harlem Prep, it was an organization called the Real Great Society, which I was a member of, and I was teaching at a prep school for high school dropouts in, not just dropouts, but kickouts, because there were kids who were considered to be unteachable, unreachable, which was bullshit, you know. But, um, so we had a special program for them and a number of people at RGS um, were doing other kinds of things, housing. And some people came, showed up to recruit students to be at this experimental college on Long Island um, under the State University of New York system, but it was supposed to be a complete and total experiment Uh, no grades, all kinds of stuff. And they showed up at, they were carefully selecting students. They had selected students from SDS, leftist students who had been kicked out of uh, Madison, um, University of Madison in Wisconsin. They had students from Chicago. They recruited two 
black students out of jail. I mean, so they decided they wanted Puerto Ricans <laughs> and they showed up in East Harlem. And my partner at the time and I were both at the school and they recruited the two of us as a couple. And I never said a word. They assumed we had never been to college. I had already been to four schools, shut down different schools, been an activist, you know, and my mother was like tearing her hair out. Are you ever going to graduate? You keep every school you go to, you shut down. And so they recruited us and they never bothered to ask me if I was Puerto Rican. And I called my mother and I said, they want me to go to this school. They're going to pay for the whole thing. They're going to pay for the books. They're going to give us a stipend every month. I said, but I think they think I'm Puerto Rican. My mother said, shut up. <laughs> <laughs> Don't say a word. You know, so Roberto and I were recruited. We went out there to help plan the school. Um, so we were in on the planning stages of the school. And we immediately pointed out to the new administration some experiment you've got. You've got exactly out of 95 students, 16 were students of color. And that included somebody from Ethiopia, somebody from Thailand that they were bringing in, somebody from Venezuela, you know. And we started protesting before the school even got on the ground. And by the second year, we had recruited um, some new students, uh, Paulie Guzman from Bronx Science High School, who became Pablo Yoruba Guzman. And, um, and we started inviting students to come to the campus from other CUNY schools. And Felipe Luciano came out. Um, he was in the last poets at that time, Juan Gonzalez who is now the co-host of Democracy Now!, came out to the campus and uh, Pablo and a brother named Muntu had gone into the city to the Panther office and they came back to campus with a copy of the Black Panther paper. And in it, there was an article about this organization in Chicago called the Young Lords, part of Fred Hampton's Rainbow Coalition. And the brothers, they had this raggedy car <laughs> and they decided they were gonna drive to Chicago to meet the head of the Young Lords, Chacha Jimenez. And us sisters said, we're not getting in that car. <laughs> we're not cramming <laughs> in that car with you. That car may not even make it to Chicago. <laughs> so it was a group of guys that went out to, to um, to visit Chacha and spend some time with Chacha and with the Panthers and with the Young Patriots, which was the, the white part of the Rainbow Coalition. They were Appalachian whites. And they came back to the campus and said, we're young lords now. Chacha had waved a wand and made the group on our end, the young lords of New York. And so the only decision that some of us had to make from the campus was, um, would we join full-time, which would mean dropping out of school, or 
be sort of continue to be associated and supportive and whatever. And of course, I had no issue with dropping out of school. That's what I did for my, for most of my life. So it was like, oh yeah, okay. And Robert and I both um, moved back into the city, and that's how it happened. So it wasn't. I guess it's not like joining something. Um, it was ultimately just making a decision to, to do it full time. Because I think that one of the things that a lot of people don't understand today was that being a member of, whether it was the Lords or the Panthers or some of the other groups that were part of the Rainbow Coalition, it was not like something that you went to a meeting once a week, you know, got together and had a rally or whatever, you left everything behind and this became a complete and total commitment. You did not have a job. You quit your job if you had a job. We lived collectively in what we call pads in communal uh, apartments. We ate together as a group, because that was the only way that we were going to eat, um, because we had no salaries coming in. And we raised money to support the organization by selling the newspaper that we ended up um, producing and, and selling on the streets. And we already had an example, because that was how the Black Panther Party was financing itself by selling the Black Panther. And um, so we, we decided to put out a paper, Balante. And one of the first things I did was work on the paper. And then every day you, you had a hundred papers and you went and you stood on the corner and sometimes you were on the corner of 125th street with the Panthers standing right there with you. We're hawking the paper and across the street would be somebody from the nation of Islam selling Muhammad speaks you know and and that was essentially how we sustained um the organization the one bill that we did not have to pay was a phone bill because the FBI was so busy wanting to listen to everything we had to say that I never I was in charge of the finances for a period of time I never had to pay a phone bill because they never cut it off because <laughs> wow. and we would put we would put uh radio right by the phone and play like Eddie Palmieri or the Temptations or whatever. So the feds have got all of this wonderful footage of salsa. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. So that's that's essentially, I know that was long-winded. I'm sorry. But that's, <laughs> that's how uh, I became a young lord. Thank you for sharing, Miss Denise. Yeah. Hi, Miss Denise. So I have questions for you. It's so good to finally see your face. The Hi. I see your face all the time on Twitter. I watch all of your <laughs> wonderful I, I dissertations on the world. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much, Miss Denise. So in follow-up, I know back in the 80s, you know, I grew up in Harlem, born and raised in Harlem. And I know the time that I was born during, it was the crack epidemic. So there was a huge age, HIV and AIDS crisis in the city in the 1980s. And of course there was limited resources at that time due to the knowledge and also of the virus and the ne negligence from the Reagan administration, which of course everybody know that. So, 
understand the severity of the situation. So can you explain your work and the involvement regarding the HIV and AIDS crisis and what measures did you take to address the concerns? Um, yeah, one of the, okay, uh, at the start of the AIDS epidemic, I actually was living in, in and it was hit very, very, very hard. I lived on Third Street and I lived across the street from the men's shelter there. Uh, also, my neighborhood on the Lower East Side had a lot of uh, gay men and gay women, but at the time, the focus was on gay men. Um, there were also uh, in Loisida, you had a very large injection drug uh, community as well, just as you did in Harlem and in the South Bronx and in parts of Brooklyn. So all of these things were coming together and people were dying. Like, I, it's hard, maybe people can understand it based on COVID and the number of deaths we've had, because it was like, you spent your life that you felt like going to funerals. Um, and what disturbed me at the time, um, I had two guys from the, the shelter used to come to my house and eat and hang out. And they were two gay men who were those barges that, that were sent. They clean, opened up the prisons in Cuba and kicked people out who were gay. And I attempted to get them help, which had opened up. And they were essentially turned away because they were well, they were not white men, you know, I'm going to be real honest about it. And also because the presumption was um, that one of them was an intravenous drug user, you know. So I got really angry and I cursed these people out. <laughs> and I said, go burn your place down. <laughs> if you don't start dealing with <coughs> people of color. And how dare you make a decision? It doesn't make any difference how you got the virus. You know, you're here to deal with people and help them with the virus. And I also came into contact with a group of people who were trying to do harm reduction uh, for the IBD change. Um, so, Around that period of time, I also medical anthropologist, uh, Dr. Michelle Shedlin, who was taking a look at, and she was doing a study with street prostitutes. Nowadays, people use the term sex to do some of the ethnographic interviewing. And I spent time out on the street, out on the hostel, hanging out at midnight, you know, up on Park Avenue and whatever with 
women and young girls who were hopping in and out of cars and getting picked up by the police, getting abused, getting doing sex to get money for their crack, you know, and living in crack houses. I mean, it was a really, really oh, um, hard thing to deal with at the time, because I know now that people talk about the glory of sex work and how wonderful and empowering and whatever it is. But from my perspective, out there on the street, there was nothing wonderful or empowering. It was about addiction and sex for money for drugs, period. And And that was the first project that I worked on as an ethnographer. And, and Dr. She uh, Michelle was like, you need to go back to school. And I was like, no, I don't want to go back to school. She said, yeah, but you're a naturalist. I want you to go back to school. And I was like, I'm not going back to school. I want you to get your PhD. I was like, I don't want to go to school. And she called me up and she said, I have an interview with you for you at the graduate center. I said, I do not want to go to school. Yes, you're going to get a PhD in medical anthropology. And she's, I said, I can't afford it. She said, we'll pay for everything. I said, uh, I still can't afford it. She said, we'll give you a stipend. <laughs> so, so I was stuck with, and I, by this time, I'm, I don't know, I was in my 40s going back to school and um, going to CUNY Grad Center um, and spending a lot more time understanding the power of medical anthropology. And while I was there, I ended up getting hired to uh, uh, by one of the professors, Dr. Leith Mullings, who passed away two years ago, who was one of the founders of the Society for Black Anthropologists. She was the head of the, um, the AAA, the American Anthropological Association. And Leith had come up with a project to look at healthcare and HIV AIDS and infant mortality and that program was known as Harlem Birthright and so as a grad student with serving the one sent to do the work of interviewing people in crack crews and infiltrating myself into hanging out in buildings with 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 uh, crackers. And the interesting thing was that the study looked at people from all different classes in Harlem, different class backgrounds. And the end results were the same. It didn't make any difference whether you were upper middle class with money and lived, you know, Sugar Hill and had good health care, or you were working class and working, you know, in a city job, or you were out on the street smoking crack and whatever. The end results of infant mortality and preterm delivery um, were equalized across the board. And we were looking at that one of the factors, one of the variables in this is looking at the stress of racism 
and how it affects women and uh, maternal mortality. I went on from working on that Harlem Birthright Project to working on the first cross um, same ethnicity, but two different locations group. Uh, I worked on a long-term study called the Ariba Project, which was looking at HIV, AIDS, intravenous drug use in East Harlem and doing comparisons. And over the course, this was a, a long project, um, and over the course of the study, all of the, the 10 people I was following intensely in their lives in El Barrio, in East Harlem, were all alive at the end of the project. The people that were being followed in Puerto Rico by the end of the project were all dead. And it was, um, and some of those studies, you can actually look for them on Google Scholar. A lot of the papers that we produced out of that study are uh, accessible online, um, but I just lost the vid visual. Okay, there we go. Um, but it was one of the things that really blew me away was looking at the differences between access to healthcare, access to treatment, um, and comparing it in the colony and in the quote-unquote ghetto, you know, um, but things were far, far better in New York by that time in the epidemic. Um, I remember going to Puerto Rico and being taken to a treatment facility for HIV-positive folk, and I went in there, and they were, it was filthy, there were dirty sheets on the beds. The patients um, weren't being fed properly or clothed properly. And I pulled this matron that was in there to the side and asked her about the treatment. And she said, well, they don't need treatment. They're healed. And I was like, excuse me? And they were like, allelu, 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 you know? They've been healed. Jesus Cristo, gracias a Dios. And I was like, oh, shit. You know, this is treatment, NPR? Um, yeah. And they were establishing a needle exchange in Puerto Rico. It was very different than the needle exchange here in the States. They gave people, you brought in syringes, and they gave people one needle. Now, anybody knows anything about people who shoot dope or people who shoot in coke, they use it more than one damn needle in one day, you know. And um, whereas in New York, at the syringe exchange that was located, they had uh, these vans that pulled up in different parts of the city. You got as many as you wanted and you got cotton, you got uh, cookers, you got uh, access to acupuncture and all kinds of other things. And at the needle exchange in Puerto Rico, you got your one syringe. And then when you were leaving, the police would bust you, you know? So that, yeah, I see you, Eliana, I see you open in your mouth. 
Yeah. Um, uh, you should read some of this stuff from that study. But um, this was my introduction to the uh, governmental responses to the HIV AIDS crisis. And one of the other things that was going on at that time was that in terms of treatment, and uh, drug treatment, meaning AZT and the things they were coming up with, all of the studies were being done on men. If it wasn't for the Women's Caucus of ACT UP who started protesting, women were shoved off to the side. Um, they presented very differently in many cases with HIV. And, um, but none of that was under study. So then they weren't uh, able to access some of the experimental treatments that were coming down to. Um, so with a group of uh, sisters that I know, we formed a group in, on the Lower East Side called Women Healing Each Other. And for women with different kinds of issues, whether it was abuse issues or whatever, or HIV issues to be able to come to a safe space and to be able to come together and talk and, and get access to available kinds of things. And also just to uh, psychologically have support from a group of other women. And that was really, uh, uh, a major change at that time because you you have to understand that people were running around at that time and if you were HIV positive families were rejecting members of their family um, or if they they had a son or a daughter who was HIV at home they were running around behind them with a bottle of Clorox and wiping anything they touched giving them separate dishes um, it was a very, very ugly and bad time. And my, my brother-in-law, uh, who had a virus, ended up in Mount Sinai Hospital. And I can never, um, never forgotten him calling and saying he was too weak to get out of the hospital bed. And he said, they're not bringing me any food. They're leaving it on the floor outside the door and I can't get out of the bed. And I was so blessed that uh, in grad school, there was a Panamanian sister who was in grad school with me and she had gone on to become the Amsbud person for that hospital for Mount Sinai. And she lived way out on Long Island. And I called her up on the phone and I said, Marisa, let me tell you what's going on. And whatever, she got in her car, drove all the way from Long Island, went into the hospital, cursed out the head of nursing, called the head of the hospital um, and demanded that people go into that room and bring him food. But, um, I'm only saying that to illustrate what it was like at that time, you know, and we can kind of relate it to the pictures you've seen of what happens to healthcare workers when people have COVID and, and some people were afraid to deal with COVID patients and I understand it, but it's the kind of thing that as activists, we have to really pay attention to and call out and not be silent. And I call upon my memories of 
what went on during that period of time of HIV and then relate it to, to, to what's going on now. Sorry, I'm long-winded again. <laughs> it was fun because we have questions and so because there's a lot of questions. And so what the third one is what advice you will give for black women working in the field for dominant that's you know all white and man. And what was your experience as a black woman when you first started, I believe, in radio? When I first started what? In radio. Oh, okay. Um all right, I started in radio um, as a member of the Young Lords, actually. WBAI-FM in New York uh, offered us to do a Palante radio show. And so that was my first experience working with public radio. And we were very lucky it was WBAI and, and some of the techie guys that were there were very helpful and they taught us what to do in the studio. And then um, a number of years later, I had moved to DC and they were building supposedly a Pacifica radio station in DC and I heard about it. The problem was, was they were in Washington DC, which is chocolate city with the vanilla suburbs. And they were planning on building a white news center or reporting from the hill and to play classical music <laughs> in DC. <laughs> so this well, this racism in public broadcasting too, you know. And a group of activists out on the West Coast heard about this crap and they stormed the board meeting of Pacifica and said, Y'all are crazy. <laughs> you going into a black city, you better hire somebody black. And you better have a program format that, that relates to the Black community. And they did. They, they were forced to hire a Black station manager who I met right away. And it turns out this is really going to sound odd, but we're both born on the same day, the same year, right? We're both born August 1st, 1947. We were both carrying a little notebook with our poetry in it, the same <laughs> notebook, and we were wearing the same pair of socks. And he took one look at me and said, you're my twin, you're hired. And I was hired to build the program format. And because I had been at BAI years before, I sort of had an idea. But I said, let's, we're going to have a jazz and jazz extension station along with public affairs. And that's what we built. And Pacifica gave us almost no money. They set us up to fail. So the people at the different stations around the country invited us to come. And we made like a fake WPFW. We made an audio tape of like what our programs were going to sound like. And they let us go on their air. And we raised money on a radio station that did not exist. <laughs> and, um, and that's how we went on the air in D.C. And we went on the air with Duke Ellington's Take the A Train because the Duke was from D.C. <laughs> and I got my experience um, not only de designing I was the first black woman to ever be a program director of a public radio station um, but I got experience also because I also did my own show called Sunbird I promised people the sun come up every day and played a lot of women's music um, 
because a lot of women in jazz kind of got shoved off to the side. So that was just sort of my commitment. I think I'm up next. Hi, Miss Denise. I can't believe I'm actually talking to you. I, sorry. <laughs> We're all having like our little fangirl moments. This is weird. This is uh, awesome. <laughs> Um, so I also have two questions for you. The first one would be, we have a lot of white people who are trying to do better. I wouldn't say be better allies because you can't declare that you are an ally. You have to prove it. So what piece of advice would you give white people? And then I guess more specifically white women with that regard. I think um, it's real simple. It's learning to listen and listening to learn, you know, that's a nice little slogan. And mm. we have done it, um, you know, I, I blog at Daily Coast. Yep. And, <laughs> and Daily Coast is still predominantly white, though they have made an effort over the years to bring in more black and more Latino writers, you know, and, um, a subsection of Daily Curse that has been there was founded by David Reed years ago. It's called Black Coast. And I'm one of the editors for Black Coast. And what we have done over the years is there are white folks at Daily Coast who come regularly to support Black Coast. They sit in Black Coast. They defend us when we're attacked elsewhere. And in fact, I kind of laugh because a couple of people who've been in Black Coast for years now have been attacked as you Black people. Mm. I'm like, I'm like, in fact, the first woman to write a piece, a major piece um, at Daily Coast on white privilege got attacked for you Black people this and she's a white <laughs> archaeologist from New Jersey, you know. And over the years, um, we have seen people stand up and be those allies. It's not that they're appointing themselves an ally. It is what they have literally done. Um, they listen, they don't put up with any of the bullshit mm. and they step up um, and, and several of them are some of my, I've known them now. I've been at Daily Coast since 2008. So I have known some of them for years and I uh, have met a number of them face to face and I trust them um, because of their actions, not because of what they type say, you know, but I've seen them stand up over and over again for uh, black folks who have come under attack. And you know that on social media, we are under attack constantly all the time and i think you've yeah. seen it with k-hive i think you've seen it with other sort of affiliated groups on twitter i'm not for the familiar. first accounts to get shut down mm -hmm. right the only accounts to get shut down right so i have seen who has stood up on 
you know, Twitter, I, I can't speak for some of the other social media, mainly because it was enough that at my age, I figured out Twitter. Okay. <laughs> I can't, we appreciate I cannot, <laughs> we, We're happy that you did. We're happy that you did. <laughs> so I, well, one, of, one of my God kids was the one who told me, you need to go get on Twitter. And I was like, why? <laughs> you know, but it's the same God who told me, you need to blog. And I was like, yeah, blog. That sounds terrible. So then what you're saying is that we owe this God child. That yes. <laughs> yes. Thank yes. you. We owe a big thank, thank you. you. Thank you. Thank <laughs> you for bringing us, Miss Denise. <laughs> yeah. So my second question is related to anthropology. I have an interesting. Um, I guess I've had an interesting experience with it. Just while I was doing my MFA in studio art and then getting the master's in African studies, the relationship between anthropology and African studies and African art. That's something I think about like a lot. So my question for you is when it comes to anthropology studies, what's the, what do you feel is the most important thing that it's taught you or that you can take away from it or even your observations about anthropology? Um, I didn't start out with an interest. In, I actually wanted to be an archeologist when I was a little kid. And I was told by a very blunt guidance counselor that you can forget about it. You know, you're a woman. Uh, on top of that, you're black. Um, and the reality is that the only woman right now in anthropology is in archaeology is Iris Love and her husband is a multimillionaire and could fund her. You'll never get any funding from the museum. So I shove that off to the side and um, shifted to art history, actually, as sort of, sort of related. And it wasn't until years later, being exposed to um, medical anthropologists and what they were doing with the AIDS epidemic that I decided to go into anthropology. One, because it was closest to my own political belief system that you have to build bridges and find yourself com comfortable with multiple cultures. And I think that I can say about my own practice um, that I have never exclusively said, I'm only going to deal in the black community. Mm -hmm. I have worked with Asian Americans, I have, you know, worked alongside of Native Americans, I have been part and parcel of um, Puerto Rican struggle for well over 50 years. And it has always, I grew up in a Hasidic Jewish neighborhood in Brooklyn. My second language as a kid was Yiddish. Um, and I have always had an interest in uh, relating to people from differing backgrounds, not as just some kind of, you know, uh, fascination, but, but I always feel like people from other cultures have stuff to teach us. If we will just open our minds, we're taught so much to be divided. We, we, we have so many barriers that um, we allow to build up, and that's our on us, 
you know, we have to do that kind of work. Um, but also that it's part of how uh, the system divides us. And I am very, very adamant the opposed to, and I see it everywhere, systemic racism. I think it's foundational in this country. I do not put class before race no. at all. It's the other way around. Okay. I disagree with my Marxist <laughs> uprising because my father, you know, was a doctrinaire Marxist for a long period of time. And uh, we agreed to disagree. Um, and I still disagree with people in DSA, CPUSA, you name it, whatever. Because for me, um, racism is is how one controls the world, you know, and and building those hierarchies with white on top. Um, I, I got ready to jump in somebody's case just the other day because uh, they were talking about Puerto Rico and. You know, yeah, there's a lot of blame. It's a colony in the United States and it's oppressed by the United States and whatever. But look who's elected there. Look at the Puerto Rican elite. All of them are elite yeah. white people, you know, but nobody wants to talk about it. And I'm supposed to shut up because I'm not Puerto Rican. But guess what? I'm not shutting up. You know, that's an internal issue that needs to be addressed and dealt with. And in fact, I just say it's a question of somebody because I was trying to go online and go on Wikipedia and look and see in the Senate in Puerto Rico and in the assembly, the, leg the legislature, how many of them are Afro-Boricuas? I think there's Irma Lassen um, from uh, Victoria Movement, the Victory Movement. And, you know, and that's a problem. And we have to learn to speak up about these things just as we have to speak up against the hoteps and the edos and the whatever oh, yeah. who are trying to divide us because um i was furious when i realized that almost no news agencies cover anything going on in the caribbean as a whole except caribbean cruise lines you know mm -hmm. tourist stuff um most people don't know even they don't know anything about Belize. They don't know anything about the Garifuna. They don't know anything about Trinidad and Tobago. They don't know anything about Montserrat. I mean, we don't get taught this stuff in school. I had Caribbean students who couldn't even fill in a map of the Caribbean. And so mm. um, for me, anthropology was a door for me to... Now, there are some negatives to anthropology too. Um, and anthropologists in, historically... Um, helped establish constructions of race and racism, you know. So that needs to be undone as well. But but it was a comfortable fit for me, and that's why I still consider myself to be a cultural anthropologist without a degree, because I walked out of grad school. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for that, Miss Denise. Um, you know listening to you speak about your work in radio before um, got me thinking, you know, how do you think music and activism kind of intertwine to oh, oh. each other? Oh, listen, I wouldn't be alive without music. I think that I would probably slit my throat if it wasn't for having music to sustain me spiritually. 
and I don't want to get all religious and whatever else, but I truly believe that our mental health um, is key. You have to be sane enough to get up every day and face what we face on a regular basis. And one of the ways that we have always healed ourselves, uplifted ourselves, pushed ourselves forward, comforted ourselves, hugged us, has been in our music and on our instruments, you know, both voice and drum and saxophone, you name it. Um, and it's one of the reasons why I started doing the Black Music Sunday series uh, when COVID struck. And I was writing whatever I felt like writing on Sundays. But when COVID struck and it would particularly struck so hard in New York City. That was the first place where, I mean, they were showing pictures of bodies piled up. You know, they didn't have room in the morgues. I said, oops, you know, time to change what I'm doing and start writing about our music and giving people a space. Um, and Delicos is a little different than a lot of blogs because um, in the comment section, we actually have conversations and people and I had people come in and post the music that they you know wanted to hear of the broader uh, understanding of black music, you know, not just R&B, but not just jazz, not just blues, but also black musics from Brazil or from Jamaica or folk musics or from the African continent. Um, so it was a very broad spectrum, but uh, at least I have that background thanks to having been at WPFW and I learned a lot from a lot of the other people who were on the air there who were experts in different genres of music. So. Um, I'm not a musician myself, but I listen to a lot of music and I'm also spiritually attuned to how music plays a role in my life. So um, that's how Black Music Sunday got started. And I always say to people, you know, you're feeling depressed, you know, yeah, go get mental health help, you know, get a therapist, get a shrink, go do whatever, but also find some music that will help you get through the day. Um, and I don't care, you know, um, what genre you pick. Um, I'm old, so you will not see me writing. No, I'm not writing about reggaeton and I'm not writing about rap and I'm not writing, you know, and because that's not what I grew up with. And it's not what I listen to, but people are welcome to write about and talk about the music that, that rocks their boat or, you know, puts them into a, a, a good space. So um, it's so key that we have ways of peeling and taking uh, the pressure off. Because look at it, what we're going through right now. Not only do we have COVID and we got idiot people who want to kill all of us because they don't want to mask, they don't want to do this, they don't want to do whatever. Then we have the destruction wrought in this country because people didn't get out and vote enough and we ended up with the orange idiot. You know, now you got war going on too. 
um, and you have a war on us, on voting and on uh, our own reproductive health rights, on the LBGTQ community, and particularly uh, the, the, the trans community. Um, so you have all of that. And how are you getting help for yourself? You know, and for me, it's find some music to help chill some of that out so that you can get up the next day and do what you got to do. Thank you, Miss Denise. So, hi, I'm, I'm Sarah. I'm like so excited to speak with you and I'm so excited for this interview and I'm completely fan. Hi. I also fangirled really hard when you followed me back on Twitter. I think I almost peed myself, but. <laughs> oh, Lord. <laughs> so um, I just wanted to know, um, you you frequently post, I think pretty much every day, you are posting updates post-Maria on Puerto Rico. And um, I just kind of want to know what what has driven your activism towards those issues facing Puerto Rico? Well, for Puerto Rico in particular, after um, or during Maria hitting, um, and not just Puerto Rico, because also St. Thomas and the rest of the U.S. Virgin Islands, too, because they had already been hit by Irma. Um, I was watching, you know, that orange fool uh, completely ignore what was happening and lie about what was happening. And in real time, I was hearing from people on the island who were like, no, you know, this whole neighborhood was wiped out. There are all these people who have died and whatever. And they're announcing 16 deaths, you know. And thankfully, Twitter, you know, people had the ability to take their, their smartphone and say, no, 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 look, look what's going on. And I was furious at how the media was not dealing with the truth of what was happening. And it was so clear um, that that was not what they were covering. And it was also clear that they had almost zero journalists who had a clue about Puerto Rico. Now, there was stuff on Twitter from PR in Spanish. But guess what? A majority of people on Twitter and other social media don't read Spanish, you know. So they're believing the, 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 the crap that's being put out and said about FEMA, who fucked up. Um, and I can go down the list. And so I literally made um, a spiritual commitment. I made what is called a promesa that... Uh, I would every single day, no matter what, have something to say, uh, even if it was one tweet about Puerto Rico. You know, I'm not a journalist, you know, from the Associated Press or this or that or the other. I'm one individual. And there is a sister who's in Vieques who gets up every day and posts, this is the number of days we still don't have a hospital in Vieques, you know? And she's obviously made her commitment to do that. And because um, 
I'm a black American. Somebody said to me, but you're a black American. Why are you bothering about Puerto Rico every day and whatever? And I said, and why shouldn't I? Hmm? Yeah. Why not? You tell me why not. You know, um, I'm cognizant of PR, have spent time there. My padrino, rest in peace, it was from Santa Isabel. And uh, I have family. My parents took me to Puerto Rico uh, to visit friends there when I was a child. I have cousins who are Puerto Ricans. My husband is a Puerto Rican. And I'm comfortable. I taught Puerto Rican history and culture. So why not be a person to speak out so that uh, Black Americans, White Americans, Asian Americans, Native Americans, I went to, to uh, members of AIM invited me out to, to teach years ago at the survival school at Pine Ridge Reservation. And what I was I lecturing to the kids about? Puerto Rican history and culture, because they didn't know anything about Puerto Rico. So if I have that oppor opportunity, I'm going to use it. And I will continue day in, I get up in the morning at four o'clock in the morning and I go and I look at the news and whatever. And then you will see, I'll have a tweet from Puerto Rico. I also go and look to see who's tweeting black history or women's history. And I'll tweet that too. And, um, and whatever else, you know, comes up. I'll put also whose birthday it is, if it's a jazz musician's birthday or whatever. And I have a, 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 a rhythm to what I do. If I wake up in the middle of the night because the dog woke me up at two o'clock in the morning, I go look on Twitter and see what's trending, you know. And I'm locked in my house. I'm also retired. I don't have to go to work. So I have time to be able to do this kind of stuff, you know, and I look and see what some of y'all are tweeting. Right. And check stuff out. And now you've dragged me into... Spaces. <laughs> <laughs> you, you know, I just want to say before we keep going, I, I want to say thank you because those tweets, though, especially right after Maria happened, really sustained me. Um, my father, may he rest in peace, uh, lived in Puerto Rico at the time. And we didn't we weren't able to contact him. We didn't know if he was alive or dead for three months, mm. aye, aye, three aye. months. Um, and so those daily reminders that somebody else really cared about what was happening were very helpful to me. And I, and I'm sure they were very helpful to lots of other people who were, you know, and, you know, unfortunately I didn't, he didn't have a great, uh, ending to that story. You know, a diabetic who depends on insulin, who doesn't have electricity for three months. Right. Yeah. You know, so a few yeah. months later he did pass, but, um, I'm so know, it, was, it was hard to, you know, see the news kind of ignore that and seeing that there was somebody out there that was really paying attention and cared was was incredibly helpful to me. So thank you. I'm sorry. Um, and that's the story so many people had and people didn't understand why he kept yelling. They need electricity. And then then fucking electrical companies lying that it, they fixed it. You know, people without electricity, without their insulin, and, and Puerto Rico has the highest percentage of diabetics in the United States. 
which is one of the medical history facts that, that a lot of people don't understand. Um, so I'm really, really sorry about the loss of your father. Thank you, Ms. Denise. Thank you, Ms. Denise. I'm Katie. Um, just a couple Hi. questions I have for you. <laughs> um, one, just kind of a fun one here that we have. What show and or podcast would people be surprised that you are a fan of? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know the answer. They might be surprised that I'm a gamer. Okay. I'm part of a political left-wing, anti-racist, anti-sexist, anti-homophobic and transphobic guild on World of Warcraft. Oh, I love that. That's just so good. Okay. And our guild, our guild leader is an archaeologist. That's cute. <laughs> that makes my nerd heart happy. <laughs> and my other question is that you've touched on music, and it's also been uh, Women's History Month and International Women's Day. What are some of your favorite uh, female musicians over the years? Oh Lord, you want me to to I will be here for hours. <laughs> um, <laughs> we'll listen for hours. <laughs> no, but who immediately comes to mind? Uh Nia Simone, uh, who's just phenomenal. Uh a woman that most people probably don't know, Betty Carter, uh also known as Betty Bebop, uh, because and she was an amazing scat singer, but also I admired her as a woman because she turned her back on the music industry and decided to distribute her own music at a time when people were beholden to, she's a tough cookie. I love Miss Betty Carter. So people should check her out. Odetta, um, I love uh, and was in DC at the time that Sweet Honey and the Rock formed. And they are my favorite sort of uh, acapella political activist um, uh, folk, whatever, uh, music group. And, and Miss Bernice Johnson Reagan, who uh, came out of the civil rights movement and the SNCC singers, she's the... I quote her all the time. I would say, if you're in a coalition and you're comfortable, it's not a broad enough coalition. And that's a quote from Bernice Reagan. So, I mean, I could go on there. Makiva, you know, uh, they're just wonderful, wonderful uh, women. I love women who, back in the days of singing doo-wops, you know, I'm a Chantel's fan. So that's kind of what what rocks my boat that's fabulous i've added a few to my list to look up <laughs> okay all right so i have two more questions one pretty simple question um what books are you currently reading and what are your recommendations oh that's that's kind of hard because I tend to read um, nine or 10 books at a time. I'm like dipping into one and then I go back over to another one. 
And recently I've actually been doing um, a refresher course and going back and reading things that I probably haven't read in 15 or 20 or 30 years. So, uh, because I realized that I take it for granted that I actually remember this stuff, but not. So I've been going back and working my way through uh, Caribbean literature that I haven't read in a long time, whether that's C.L.R. James, uh, Black Jacobin, whether it's it's Eric Williams uh, on capitalism, Walter Rodney on. Uh, I have been doing, I've been reading, I, I'm rereading Fanon. Uh, I'm looking at a number of the, and I have a list of also women writers too, but right now I'm looking at sort of the uh, Amy Césaire. I'm looking at foundational uh, Caribbean intellectuals. And because we give them short shrift here, but some of the most political writing and revolutionary writing historically comes out of the Caribbean. And I realized people would say to me, oh, and I mentioned Sila, what did he say? And I go, uh, and then I realized I hadn't read him in years, you know. So that's what, what I'm doing right now. And what I'm reading right now, I also, you know, sometimes sit down and look at comic books um, and stuff. Or I have uh, two friends of my dad's were, um, had all these degrees in English literature and English history, and they couldn't make any money. And so they write like historical romance novels. And sometimes I relax and just read some of those, you know, and they're all accurate historically because these are brilliant women that have written them. They just couldn't make any money. So they did bodice rippers, you know, and everybody has to have some things that they relax. I'm also going to be rereading the first books. My mom used to read uh, Langston Hughes's Just Be Simple stories to me as a little kid. They were way beyond my pay grade as a kid, but I enjoyed them. And so I'm actually planning to, in the next couple of weeks, go back and uh, take myself back to being a little kid and listening to Langston Hughes, Just Be Simple. Sometimes you need it after such heavy reading, you know? Yes. <laughs> I just wanted to say that every single one of those Caribbean writers that you mentioned, I was like, well, this just sounds like my last year of grad school. And now I want to go back to my notes. <laughs> Oh. So I was like, yep, yep, I read that person, I read that person, I read that person. So you did in grad school, that's great. Because yeah. so few grad schools have that as part of the syllabus. So that's wonderful. I'm um, very fortunate that I was recruited for African studies while doing art. Like, yeah. Okay. okay. And I just wanted to say thank okay. you for jogging my memory because I want to go back and look over some of my notes from yeah, from school. Okay. <laughs> You're blessed. <laughs> because I bring up those names and a lot of times people say to me, who are you talking about? And these are friends of mine with college degrees, you know, who are educated and <laughs> um, but they they ignorant. 
You know, mm. that's mm -hmm. one of my favorite mm -hmm. words on Twitter. You know, I be calling people ignorant. Yes, uh, ma'am. Often. <laughs> All right. So my last question. Um, it's kind of four. Four out of five of us are all located in New York State. On the panel. I'm in Kentucky. <laughs> and when in Kentucky. Oh, bless <laughs> um, you. <laughs> and so I mean it's it's kind of New York centric but I'm curious as to like further expansion with the question but um I work for the state and mm -hmm. I know that a lot of our lawmakers um they seek out community organizers, community leaders on feedback with legislation that they want to introduce with the state legislature. And I know that we have, we have one assemblyman, um, self-proclaimed Black Panther, Charles Barron. Um, I know that he's introduced some different legislation uh, regarding the renaming of Columbus Day to Indigenous Peoples Day. And he's, he's introduced several other measures um, bringing up anti anti-racism whatnot but we we also have other assembly members and state senators who were community organizers um activists and everything before reaching office do you are you involved with that process at all with helping them to see into the community there um to draft legislation that you feel could help the state or specifically your community or have you even have you had any contact with even other state legislatures from surrounding states uh to um, try to draft i have got involved uh we recently relocated from living on a farm into in Sorgates, uh to living in the city of Kingston because my husband had a stroke and so we had to to relocate for him to be able to uh, access getting up and down or, and whatever and I was involved with my local Democratic Party committee in fact I ended up for a long period of time ended up integrating it because um, let me tell you something I live upstate so Everybody there was white. And the first time I walked into the meeting, people, it was in the library. People said, oh, the library's upstairs. And I said, uh, no, I'm here for the Democratic Party meeting. You know, and they kind of looked at me like I had two heads. Um, so there was that. Um, I, had, I actively fought to get um, Antonio Delgado elected as our congressperson. I worked with my students the best I could at SUNY New Falls when I was still teaching there because not one student ever could tell me who their state assembly person was, their state senator was. In fact, most of the students couldn't even name the two senators from New York that go to Washington, Schumer and Gillibrand. Wow. Um, I have been very disturbed that, unfortunately, it seems to me, or at least what I saw over the years I taught at New Falls, that my freshman students, that civics seems to have disappeared from the curriculum in high schools and, and middle schools um, in New York. So 
Um, have I been involved with any of the other legislatures or whatever? No. Uh, it was enough to fight because we had a right-wing insane person representing us in Congress here for a period of time. And, yes. And unfortunately, they sent um, who was running against him was Zephyr Teachout. And she was horrible. Nobody um, likes her. Nobody wants her. Stop. She keeps oh, trying. No, she keeps no, trying. But I'm she she trying. No, but a friend of mine who's a union organizer organized a, a coffee gathering for her to come, organized a group of women of color to come together and sit and talk with this woman. I was open to listening to her. Mm -hmm. And she sat there. One, she didn't eat the food, and there was all this food that was prepared, you know, and you're going to do that in people's houses. Mm -mm. Second place, and the only thing out of her mouth was hedge fund, hedge fund, hedge fund, hedge fund. Instead of talking about bread and butter issues that people were concerned with, child care, their kids' education, food, whatever, whatever. And I, I couldn't believe it, you know. And then she wanted to pass a basket, and I told her point blank. Um, uh, I'm not giving you a penny because you don't know how to act. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm in the same. district right next to hers, like right, well, right next to yours. I'm in Tonko's district. Oh, okay. So, so you know I'm like, what I'm talking yeah, about. Yeah, and like I, I, I volunteered to canvas for Antonio Delgado when he went up against Fazo, and I couldn't vote for him because he's not. I'm not in his district, mm. but. I drove over and I was canvassing for him and everything else. But I remember when Zephyr Teachout ran against Fazo that first time. It was she, it was embarrassing. She was embarrassing. She was horrible. And they're going to run her for some more stuff. I just can't understand why, you know. I mean, it was bad enough that they had sex in the city lady who was running for <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, Oh, my God. Uh, Nixon, her. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I mean, I keep telling people, I say it over and over again. People say, I don't understand. You're a revolutionary. <laughs> you voting for Democrats. I said, yeah, I am a pragmatic radical. Thank you very much. And we need mm -hmm. to deal with, on the one hand, you can be out in the street, power to the people, fighting right on, and that's good. But you also need to walk your ass to the voting booth and not vote for some fringe lunacy either. You know, because people that did that and they had again, ma'am, on the Supreme Court. You know, we're in deep shit thanks to people who decided to go off and do their own thing. You know, and that's that's. Never mind, because I'll start cussing. <laughs> no, but you're speaking yeah. truth, though, because it's just like people just like acting like, oh, you know, this doesn't affect me. Yes, it does affect you, man. It does affect you. Like what we got going on like right now, like in our, in our group of Tory race, following up with Sarah, we, we got, you know, and it's no shade to nobody. Like I'm staying neutral because my candidate is now running for re-election for her position because ask the person that. Who thought, who was in my mind would be the next person after Andrew Cuomo? But, you know, it's no disrespect to Kathy. I feel like Kathy should expand on her base. Like the recent Democratic convention, this, this is not her fault. I blame the state chair. This is the state chair's doing. Like you're not involving the Latino community, Latino community in New York City in particular, and even in Buffalo, where 
Lauren Ashley is, that's a big demographic. Latinos in New York are different from Latinos in like, you know, Florida. They mm -hmm. vote democratically, especially mm -hmm. Puerto Ricans and Dominicans. That's, that's true. A big swamp. Like, that's true. I don't understand how you leave out that community. And uh, what I want Kathy to do, because I think it's in her heart, and I think she has it in her heart, even though she was not my preferred candidate, she was like the second person. I want her to reach out to that community. Go to the hood. Even if you got to go in your little rain jacket and your little hat, do what you got to do. Put your little <laughs> Buffalo or Western New York charm on so you can sway voters because that's the only way you can win. Like you're the only one that can actually win those voters. So you need to go out there. You don't have to take Brian with you. You can go by yourself. You capable of going by yourself. You are the governor. You are Governor Kathy Hochul or Catherine Hochul. I think Catherine is her name. Go out there. Do what you got to do. You know, sway those voters. Talk to the Puerto Ricans in the Bronx, East Harlem, actually in Central Harlem. And in places like, listen, Rochester, Buffalo, but Newburgh. Yep. Newburgh. Yes. Where you know they what? have lead in the pipes. Yes. You know, and it has become, I call it uh, Bantu stands, because as they gentrify in New York City, it's pushing people to places like Newburgh. Mm, which is yes. basically Latino at this point. Yes. Um, so there's a know. lot of Latinos in Rockland County too. Yes. Yes. And they're, they're kind of forgetting that that's there. Um, and that's a very, I want to say it's a purple area because mm -hmm. it really can go either way, depending on who's showing up to vote. Um, yeah. There's a lot of communities like that in New York state. And I, and I suspect in a lot of other states, you know, in the country and people need to get more involved in their local government and local elections because they, they matter. Yeah. 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 For everything, for school board, for whatever, for town council, it doesn't make any difference. Um, and I always talk to young people about, you know, to ask them, um, you know, Who's representing you? You need to know who these people are. And you can go and speak out and speak up um, and encourage them to, to do that because we're in some deep mess. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, it's not going to get fixed uh, easily. And it's going to take time. Uh, as people who are politically engaged, we have a responsibility to, you know, kind of like each one teach one, mm -hmm. and grab some some other folks and get them involved. And I try to the best of my ability. I'm not going out of my house these days because of COVID, and I'm not killing myself because you got too many people up here who are anti-vax and anti-mask because I'm in and who have Trump crap mm. on their pickup trucks and Confederate flags. I see you shaking your head. <laughs> and How are but, you going to have a Confederate flag in your truck when you're in the heart of the union? <laughs> I grew up in Oregon and I saw it. And I'm just like, <laughs> Oregon, why? You know, it's like... Are this from the South? <laughs> that don't matter. I mean, our... <laughs> Our county executive is Steve McLaughlin. You know, he's been indicted on crimes. He, he's a total Trumper. It's. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I know. And people think they hear in New York and they're, oh, you're where all the liberals are. And I'm like, 
in no. my life <laughs> in New York. Apparently, these liberals are getting on my nerves in, in Manhattan. The ones that just came from Mid-Sky, like, you know, saying streets wrong. I'm like, that's not how you say it. <laughs> Oh no, 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 no. Oh, that's like they go to they go to Houston Street. It's one, two, one and Frederick Douglas Boulevard, 121st and 8th. Let's just let's just keep it real. <laughs> I know. I know. Oh, my uh, so um I really uh I hope I have to say to you that that I really, really appreciate and and love um, following folks on Twitter. It really, as much as there's craziness on Twitter, there's also a sense of love and community and support. And it really makes me feel good. And then I'll wake my husband up and guess what they just said on Twitter. <laughs> and, and he's like, oh, really? You know, and uh, did too raw, too real do anything? What, Kenny? Kenny's <laughs> Did you see the video? Did y'all did y'all see the man enough for me? I can't even listen to. Um, it's talking my head now. It's new one, his newest one. Yes. <laughs> did you see oh, Mr. Denise? I have cool. passed it on to. Because most of the people my age are not on Twitter. My friends, they have like Facebook and they show pictures of their grandchildren to each other. And that's basically what they do on social media. So I'm the one who go, no, you got, I call them up on the phone. No, you got to check this out. <laughs> and, and, uh, and, and so y'all are, are my sheroes. Oh, I have fun uh, reading. What you. an honor. Thank you. Oh, it, is. it is. That's going to carry me through the week. Whatever. <laughs> it's going to carry me through the rest, rest of my life. life. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I was like, I we set say. off Women's History Month right. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. It's exactly. incomparable, Miss Denise Oliver Velez. Thank you so much for being a part of our show. You know, we are so grateful. Um, and, you know, before we close up, is there anything you'd like to plug? Anything coming up that you want to share with our listeners? I would like um, those of you who are Democrats um, <laughs> to come and no, I mean, I'm, I'm serious about this. Uh, come and and come visit us at Black Coast. And uh, and also come drop in and join me on on Sundays for the music. But um, we need more voices to come and support and sustain what we've been doing. It's it's not easy, you know, having to. We've got these commitments and every single day to do to do something and um a lot of people are kind of oh i don't know about joining a blog well you could come hang out we call it the front porch and yeah. we say the moonshine is buried under the porch but <laughs> if you bring us some chocolate we love you um, <laughs> so you have to make an account you can put your own name or whatever whatever and and come visit we're on tuesdays and fridays at 5 p.m eastern standard time Okay. And 
is Chi-Town Kev and Joe Marr and Justice Putnam and, and Dopper, David Reed and myself are the editors and we've been there for a long time and we need a shot in the arm. We need some support. So uh, that's my plug. Come join Black Coast. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> Thank you so much, Miss Thank you. Thank you for having me. Oh my gosh. Enjoy the rest of your Sunday. It's finally not frozen. I hope it's not that cold <laughs> update. I'm waiting for my puppies to arrive. And so Yay. I put a picture up on Twitter. We're getting puppies because we lost our two elder dogs and our other dog is miserable and lonely. So she's got two, oh. two puppies on the way for her to be a mama too. So that's oh, my, so my reason. <laughs> Goodbye. Bye. 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 Thank you for joining us for another episode of Unapologetically She. I'm Sarah. I'm Shante. I'm Eliane. You can find us on all social media platforms at the T-H-E-E Joyful She. And it's because of listeners like you that we are able to share our thoughts on current events. Please support us on Patreon at The Joyful She. We'll see you online.